Hey, y'all. I'm excited for this week's episode of the Rise Together podcast. This week, we have Zerlina Maxwell joining the conversation. Zerlina is the Senior Director of Progressive Programming for SiriusXM. She's the co-host of the award-winning radio show Signal Boost on Sirius and is the author of the book, The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide. She was formerly the Director of Progressive Media for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. She worked in the campaign's press shop, pitching coverage to progressive media outlets and curating daily messaging for online influencers. She's also acted as a campaign spokesperson for the presidential debates. She's an MSNBC political analyst, a speaker, and a writer for a variety of national media outlets. Her writing focuses on national politics, candidates, and specific policy and culture issues, including race, feminism, and gender inequality. I am excited that she's here. Yes, she represents the left. And yes, we'll have someone who represents the right. But today, we're going to hear from her about how she's thinking about all the things that go into the race for the White House and how race generally plays into everything we're doing inside of politics. Let's rise together. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. In your own words, who are you? What do you do? And what are you most proud of? Mm, that's a hard question. I, um, that's a big question. So, yeah. So who am I? I'm Zerlina Maxwell. I am a big sister. I'm a daughter. I host a morning radio show. So I'm one of the co-hosts of the only feminist morning show in the United States on Sirius XM channel 127. It's from 7 a.m. Eastern to 9 a.m. Eastern every day. Um, and I'm an MSNBC political analyst. Uh, now, I guess I have to add author onto that because I have a book now. So I get to add that on like a comma and a new, a new title. Um, but I think what I really am is somebody who cares about making the world more fair. So whatever jobs I'm doing, I usually has that as the ultimate goal. Um, and I've always been that way. So that's who I am. That's good. I'm here for it. And I like that you're trying to create something in this world that maybe creates a little more balance, a little more access, a little more opportunity, all of those things. Uh, so yes, you say you are now a writer, a radio host, an analyst, you've worked on campaigns. Uh, it does feel like the one thing that binds all of your experience together is communication and yes. a belief in some ways of the power in storytelling. I want to talk about how you use storytelling to affect change, because it's part of what we're trying to do on this show. What is it that you've learned in your experience in how storytelling can help achieve that goal? Well, one of the things I didn't answer the question about what I'm most proud of, because I still have to think about that one. I skipped that one. We're coming um, back I to think that one. I, we're going to come back to it. In storytelling, though, I think it's really about people's lived experiences. So when we're in, in the context of politics, which sometimes people think is like, you know, a topic that should be is taboo 
in, in polite company. We don't talk about politics here. You know, you don't talk about money, politics, um, those kinds of things. Everybody was sort of raised with that messaging. But I've always felt like politics was an extension of the policy that impacts me every day. So, you know, whether or not, um, you know, there's roads that have holes in them, that's somebody's decision, right? And, and somebody's inaction, perhaps, that has led it to be, you know, a pothole that's damaging my car. That's somebody's job to fix that. So that's just like sort of the meta example. But I think what's really important to understand is that we have the power in this country, in a democracy, to affect those things. So for me, I think storytelling is about saying, okay, well, this is my experience. So I'm a black woman, I'm college educated. So my lived experiences are specific, but similar to other black women at all socioeconomic le levels. Why is that? Why is you know the equal pay um, something that, or the gap, pay gap, something that impacts women no matter what socioeconomic level they're at? Um, that seems to be something that we pro should probably take a moment, talk about it, and figure out how to make it better. So I think storytelling in politics, you know, on the campaign, it was telling a story about, in, in my most recent job, about Hillary Clinton, um, and then before that about Barack Obama, because in different capacities, my job on those campaigns were to tell the story about the candidate and how they were going to help people's lives. And I think storytelling is a critical component in politics because it allows people to see themselves, you know, in the candidates, perhaps, hopefully, that's at least the goal of my book is to, is to get people to see themselves reflected back in their elected leadership. Yeah, it's interesting because we, um, we've had experiences in trying to push into communities that are different from us of through stories, being afforded an opportunity for some empathy that just wouldn't have existed because oh, wow, you're a family like we're a family, or you have children like we have children. But the things that you're experiencing because of the color of your skin or your sexual orientation or whatever it might be are different from the things that we're experiencing. But until the story was told by a human that we were actually in conversation with, it just didn't feel like it landed on us in the way that it tends to once we're actually able to hear the story from someone else's perspective. So, so good. I, I love that. I know your experience with Barack Obama probably had many highlight <laughs> moments, yeah. but I'm curious, especially against the backdrop of everything that we're experiencing in real time. Uh, in 2015, I know you were one of five journalists who was invited to come on to Air Force One with the president for his trip to Selma for the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. I'm wondering if you can share just a little bit about that or any highlight, but that one in particular, because I just know yeah. that you were there. I'm like, oh my goodness, what must it yeah. have been like to participate in something that was so meaningful given uh, everything that was happening then, but even frankly, just in retrospect, being able to reflect on it given everything that's happening now. I would say that's my proudest moment. I think I, that's the answer to your first question because I just can't top it. There's nothing that can beat that. So now it's like, what goals can I set now? Because you know that was kind of a big one that I didn't even aim for. It was like, you know, you're not, you don't write that down in the journal at the beginning of the year. Like I would like to write on Air Force, that's not a thing, right? So when the opportunity comes, of course you do it um, and you take advantage. But I also had the added sort of context of, I had family members who marched in Selma in the third March, um, 50 years prior. Um, my aunt who was 17 and my late grandfather. So my aunt, I could call her on the phone and I did from the bus. Cause I took the bus cause I was, you know, I didn't have any money at the time. <laughs> I was a writer. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm taking the, I think I was on the Bolt bus, I swear. It was a bolt bus. Yep. Um, and going down to DC from New York city and I'm 
you know, on the phone with my, my aunt, you know, asking her about her experience, about what, you know, all of her memories. So I can sort of like have that flowing in my head. So she's retelling me the story about, you know, going down at 17, there were a lot of rumors that the plan was out, you know, she was afraid and, you know, that sort of still is traumatizing in some ways, like to think back to the, that how scared she was at 17. But then 50 years later, sitting there on the plane, on the way to Selma with the president, the black president, I was, I mean, it was just like, okay, we're full circle. And so it, it's like, it literally cures any cynicism you could ever have. Like people who are like, nothing can change. Everything's terrible. A lot of people did this after 2016 and I get it because it was It's scary. I mean, I think we were all sort of right to have, you know, certain existential fears um, about what was going to happen um, post 2016. But I think a lot of people, you know, don't realize that the Selma trip was a moment where you almost had to pinch yourself because you couldn't believe that, you know, you were actually a part of the full circle moment, but also it, it was just so, I mean, John Lewis was there, obviously, um, the late John Lewis. And so it was the kind of moment where no one could stand there on that bridge and, and realize how far we've come, you know, from 50 years prior and, and remain cynical. You like couldn't walk away from that cynical. So that was an incredible experience. I mean, it was, we watched, I think there's, a, my friend has a write-up in the now defunct Grantland. So he was also on the trip, Rember Brown. And he, his write-up of it is so funny because, you know, he was talking about how nervous he was. And so he, it's like an internal monologue. But then he talks about how like we got on to Air Force One. And for the first, like, I swear, like 20 minutes, we didn't see anybody who was not black, which in, in you know, like, it sounds weird to say that, but it was just like, wait, oh, wait, wow. This is like, it just, given United States history, it was just even symbolically um, a moment where it felt like, oh, we've, we've shifted. We're not, we now have representation in terms of, you know, the national security advisor was Susan Rice, Valerie Jarrett was there, even our secret service <laughs> person was black. So it was just, it was a cool thing to see how far we had come literally from 50 years prior. Powerful, so powerful. Uh, so you work in media, which also includes social media, yes. which can at times be a dumpster fire, but your Twitter account is consistently named one of the must follow for current events and politics, which has to feel like something of a responsibility given how fragmented and crazy news and misinformation can tend to be on uh, the interwebs, as it were. But I'm wondering if you have any insight into how we can use social media to break through the noise and communicate better with each other or uh, in a way that at least gets the right information into the right hands more effectively and more often. Well, I mean, right now, Twitter's sort of, I would stay away from Twitter right now. I'm, and I used to be the, the biggest proponent of it, but it's just a little bit of a mess in, the mo in this moment. I mean, you can't have the full conversations you used to have, although it's a great organizing tool. So like, I think you sort of have to look at, you know, Instagram versus TikTok versus Twitter, um, you know, and use them for different things. Like maybe Instagram is a better place to spread accurate information about real world events because you can, you know, just click that airplane um, icon and share an infographic. I mean, you could do that on Twitter too with the retweets, but then people comment and it, you know, it can become a little muddled, I think. So, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of gravitating more towards Instagram in this moment. 
Um, but Twitter is something that I feel like it, it's, it works for me because I'm concise um, or I try to be. And certainly when you're forced into brevity, it makes you be more clear. It, it makes it so that you just have to say the thing. You can't like beat around the bush to say the point. You just have to say it. And so I find that like, you know, my, my humor, my sense of humor kind of works better on Twitter because I'm pretty snarky. And then it's funny when people don't know that and they take me literally or very seriously. And I have to be like, you just always have to sort of read it with a little bit of sarcasm, um, you know, like infused in the tweet because it's just like how I am. Um, and I think it comes through in my book too. I feel like people are like, wow, your book was like, you know, you were just saying the things. And I'm like, that is how I am. You know, I, you sort of have to just tell the truth. So that sometimes is um, productive on Twitter, but sometimes it's not. Yeah. And I'm, I have actually, before quarantine, I actually had deleted Twitter from my phone and also Instagram from my phone. Um, so that I wasn't, and Facebook had long been deleted from my phone, but, but because it was, it's so easy to mindlessly scroll. Um, I sort of had to like make it so that I had to make an effort to use it, which I found healthier. But then when we were first in quarantine, it was like, what am I supposed to do all day? (laughs) The book wasn't out yet. I was like, uh, okay, well I have to get these apps back because I'm scrolling. And then it was just for the first couple of weeks, it was like, people doing the same TikTok dances. So then it wasn't even like, anyway. Meaningful. It wasn't. It was really a waste of time. But I guess like I needed that in that moment a little yeah. bit. So you mentioned your book. You have a book that just came out in July. It's called The End of White Politics, How to Heal Our Liberal Divide. First of all, great title, ambitious thesis. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the book and what readers can expect? Sure. I think, you know, the, the title, The End of White Politics, is bold, but it's bold for a reason. Because people are going to be like, what? What, Serlina? You want to end white? Any, you know? And I go, well, if you think about it, we've been doing white identity politics the whole time. We just didn't call it that. We just called it politics. And we focused primarily, you'll notice this next time you watch an election returns, on white voters. Most of the screens and the slides and pie charts that you're seeing um, is breakdowns of different sections of the white electorate. And then you get to the slide that goes black vote. And then you get to the slide that goes Latino vote. And then maybe they get to AAPI, but usually not. <laughs> um, and, and that's it. You're done. You get white working class, white college educated, white married, white single women. You know, like you get every single um, demarcation, um, but not for groups that are not white. So for me, the end of white politics is a statement that I'm, I want to get us to a place where we can give nuance to every type of person and open up the spectrum of, of you know, policies and um, problems that we're concerned with and how they impact all different types of people, not just white voters. And I, I'm talking about the liberal side of the political spectrum because that's where I am. And um, I don't, I I do talk about, um, you know, sort of the right wing of the political spectrum as well, and sort of their understanding of where America is headed, because basically the book is, you know, the data that I'm working with is Pew Research says by 2045, America will be minority white. So what does that mean for our politics? So the end of white politics is essentially just a statement of aspiration, (laughs) based on what's going to happen. You know, in a state, I think you live in Texas, right? 
So in a state, you already are a minority white electorate in Texas. Um, Latinx voters are the largest voting population in your state. And most of those voter, voters are under the age of 30. <laughs> like, you know, uh, each, each state has different characteristics to it. Um, but I think it's important to understand that we need to be talking to everyone. And I think for so long, we sort of, you know, looked at white as it's not an identity, which it is, um, and that it also is the default identity. So we don't even notice that we're sort of defaulting to that. Like when we say suburban women, well, we mean, we mean white. They mean white when they say that in the media, um, but they don't you know, specify. So you think they're just talking about all suburban women when really that's not what they mean. Um, and so it's important for us to one, notice that um, and adjust as America's demographics are shifting because Generation Z and millennials are bigger than baby boomers and way more diverse. So we're gonna have to figure out how to speak to different types of voters who come from all different backgrounds. And that's really what the book is saying. It's a bold title. And I think some people will be like, whoa, what do you mean? But then most people who read it are like, oh, this is so obvious. Why doesn't everybody get this? Why, why, this is so simple. I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is in like in real time, the conversation around policy and politics and how politics affect policy and how those policies ultimately affect the, the population that is ultimately being served by whoever's been elected, uh, it tends to also bring into a conversation how some policies are just built to take better care of people who happen to be white than people who are not. And this conversation around privilege ends up coming up. And some people, man, just feel so uncomfortable and kind of buck against that. And hey, here I am, I'm a white person who's trying to engage more in conversations around my own allyship and privilege. And as much as people can argue sometimes on news shows or anywhere else, frankly, about what white privilege means, is there something that you've said or have a have a, a position on that you might help any listener who doesn't themselves totally understand this idea of white pr privilege, kind of what the concept is and how it pertains to politics in particular? Oh yeah, I think that in the book I, I go through um, a section in the chapter called the white resistance, and I basically explain white privilege this way: like white privilege is not calling someone a racist. That's a whole different conversation. White privilege is just the things that you as a white person don't have to think about ever because of your white skin. It's just the benefits of your white skin that make you safer, um, that make you um, more likely to get a loan at a bank, that make you more likely to get paid more for the same work. Um, it's those kinds of things. Like you're never going to be able, you're never going to think about those um, distinctions because, you know, they just happen. That's just the way things are. Right. And so people are like, well, that's just the way things are because it's the way they've always been. And I'm like, wait, no, but that was not fair um, or that was not, you know, equitable. And, you know, the ways in which we think about the recent wave of protests post George Floyd. I mean, essentially, the way I, I went back to the white resistance chapter during the first week of, of protests around George Floyd's killing. And I had a section where I literally say, like, you never have to think about when you're going out for a jog, like you might get shot. Like that's just not, you know, something that most white people think about when they're doing like a once over in the mirror before they head out. That's not a thought. So it's just, that's the privilege is the thing you don't have to think about. 
you know, and, and that doesn't mean that you're a bad person or anything. That just means that, okay, you have some advantages because those thoughts, they add up. You have to think about them throughout your whole day and then add being a woman on top of that. And then you might get cat called and then shot by the police later. <laughs> so it's like, you know, there, there are levels to it. So I just, I explain it to people where it's like, it's not an indictment of your character, or who you are, anything. It's just that there are just some things you don't have to think about. Yeah, And I, there are things that I do have to think about that make, you know, my lived experience on a day-to-day basis just a little bit harder. Um, that doesn't mean your life is not hard. It's just hard in different ways. Now, I, I, I wrote about this in my book that my experience in a multicultural church when we were originally mm-hmm. adopting out of Ethiopia and wanted to just get in community when we thought we were going to have a child of color, like, hey, let's just go be in community with people who are not necessarily like us, have a different worldview, all those things. And it happened to be at the same time that Michael Brown and Tamir Rice became names inside of the you know news cycle. And uh, what would have probably been, to be honest, because of privilege, something that just kind of came and went through my scroll became a wildly longer conversation about what it means to raise children in America as a white person versus raising children in America as a black person. And this guy that I was sitting next to at church one day asked me a question if I'd had a conversation with my kids about what to do when they got pulled over. And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. What are you, what, like, what are you talking about? And he's like, man, we have kids the same age. I had young kids. He's like, I'm already having a conversation with them about the things that they have to do when they get pulled over because getting pulled over while black is different than getting pulled over while white. And it had not one time in my entire life, I was in the time, whatever, 35, 37 years old, it hadn't occurred to me one time that that was an actual real thing. And that is to me, the definition of privilege that it had never once in my lifetime occurred to the person who I'm sitting next to who's the same age, who's already engaged in the conversation for a couple of years with his kids about how to do something that I don't have to think about teaching my kids how to do. Ay, goodness. So you mentioned George Floyd, obviously, like I wrote a book earlier this year, you wrote a book earlier this year. The world is completely different relative <laughs> yes, to is. when we wrote books to yeah. now them coming out. Uh, mine did not have to do uh, with white politics, but I'm gonna assume that the global events, the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, the subsequent protests, everything uh, is changing a little bit of how people are engaging with and receiving your book. Uh, You clearly could not have had the foresight to understand what the world would look like as you were writing it, but how has what's happening in the world changed the way that people are talking about the book? Well, at the beginning of quarantine, I was like, oh, are people even gonna be talking about the election um, because of the pandemic? Um, but I do think that it, it re- it's still resonating with people, one, because it's giving them um, sort of a, a framework for the future, right? So, so how to build, um, you know, a polity that looks like us, like looks like the voters, right? Because, you know, no part of government at any level, Congress all the way down, should be 75% white or 75% men. And that's what we're working with um, in so many different um, uh, halls of power. I mean, women are 51% of the population, <laughs> women. And that's, I mean, so it's like, you know, we should at least be 51% of Congress, right? So, and we're so far away from that. So that's first, it's like quarantine aside, we should be doing better. Um, and I think that that's a straightforward argument that anybody can get behind, no matter who you are. I mean, everybody should agree that more representation is better 
because then we get better policies because you have, you know, women are more collaborative. So they'll get in there and they'll hash it out and they'll figure it out. And then we'll come out um, with something where we can all go get the vaccine at CVS potentially. Right. So like, you know, there's practical (laughs) reasons why you want people who are from all backgrounds because they can consider things that, you know, people that are millionaires who are in there in our Congress or in our Senate, like there are now that they're not even considering it because it's not like they ever had to worry about unemployment benefits or, you know, standing on a line for food at a food bank. So I think that's a part of it. So the, so the beginning of the, the quarantine, I wasn't sure, but I felt like it still had a message that could resonate with folks. Now, post George Floyd, I don't, I mean, like, I was like, I didn't know any of this was going to happen. But if you go into the white resistance chapter, I am talking about last July, where, I mean, today, or this week, rather, is the anniversary of the El Paso shooting and the Dayton shooting. So we were dealing with violence last year. It was different, but it was still racialized violence um, and sort of a symptom of the same underlying problems that we persistently deal with in this country because we never really, really confront and address it. So I feel like the beginning of quarantine, I was like, okay, I don't know if anybody's going to read a book about politics. Then George Floyd happened. And I was like, everybody should read this book because I definitely was on to something. But I always tell people that I thought as soon as Donald Trump was elected, that we were in an incredible amount of danger. And I joke that I actually bought a boat like an inflatable one that you can like blow up if you need to get out of your apartment in a flood, for example. Cause you know, I live in Brooklyn and that happens a lot. There's about to be a hurricane tomorrow. You know, this is a thing that happens. And so I just like to think ahead like chess. So you just have to think ahead and try to, you know, plan for, for the emergency. So that's what I, that I, I feel like because my brain works that way, I, it doesn't surprise me that the book still resonates, but it definitely was a concern because I was like, is anybody going to care about an election when we're all caring about living through the next day, you know, and going to the grocery store is like an episode of Bird Box where like, or it was a movie where it was like a scene from Bird Box and they like go out into the grocery store and there's like zombies everywhere. And so, no, the metaphor fully works because I've done, I've done this whole metaphor. It, this is Bird Box and every other dystopian plot that we're dealing with. But I feel like people really, um, are receptive now to something new because the status quo is so obviously not going well. Uh, The term identity politics. Identity politics is uh, something that you hear a lot about. I don't know uh, that everyone listening necessarily knows what that means. Will you please uh, help us understand a little bit? What does it mean? Why is it important as we're smack in the middle of an election year? So identity politics is a term that was coined by Black feminists in 1977, and it was essentially a framework to come at politics and policy from people's backgrounds and their identities so that they can, um, one, uh, figure out ways to build political power, but also to rise up into positions of political power. So it's basically a framework for politics, and it wasn't until it started working (laughs) (laughs) that it became a bad thing. You know, in 2016, I was like, identity politics is bad. This is bad. And I'm like, one, Donald Trump effectively used white identity, certain aspects of white identity and white identity politics to appeal to his base. And, you know, Hillary Clinton did attempt to use identity politics to appeal to the Democratic base. I do think that, you know, when you're talking about identity politics, it's really just about um, your identity being the basis 
for which you talk about policy and potential solutions. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I find it ironic that a term that was coined by Black feminists is now seen as like a bad thing. Um, but the only reason why I think often certain terms like feminist even, they, they get a negative connotation is because of how powerful they are. Yeah. So if you think about it, identity politics is a, is a powerful way to build coalitions uh, because coalitions um, have intersecting interests. So for example, if I am a Black queer woman, I care about LGBTQ equality, and I also care about racial justice, and I also care about gender justice, and I also care, you know, you can go down the whole list. And some of the reasons I may care about those specific issues do have to do with my identity. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That means that I have an incentive and also perhaps some lived experience and expertise on how that policy is affecting people like me. And then I can say, well, that, that specific thing or tenet of Obamacare, that's not going to work because this is how it actually affects people in real life. And so I think identity politics is the politics of the future, whereas white politics and white identity politics, frankly, were you know, the politics of the past that really only benefited certain folks at the expense of others. And so what I want is a world in which we're all sort of you know, able to be helped. And that no one is, you know, being helped at the expense of everyone else. I, I just feel like that's just not, that's not equal. Yeah. No, I'm we not just, happy about that. We had, a, we, had a, we had a recent episode where one of the lines that came out in a conversation with uh, Dr. Ed Barron, who specializes in uh, just having hard conversations about pushing into <laughs> racism and anti-racism. The line was that the system isn't broken. The system produces the exact result that it was created for. And one of the remedies to a system that is producing a result that, uh, you know, does not create equality or equal opportunity is to afford people through identity or whatever else it might be an equal voice at the table and finding a way to have new policies introduced that might actually afford a system output that is a reflection of those voices. Um, you have talked a lot about the idea of incremental change versus transformative change. Mm -hmm. I think it's safe to say that you are an advocate for transformative change. Can yeah. you talk just a little bit about that, how they work together and what we could do to support more transformative change? Well, one of the things I think about when I think about incremental change is that it comes from a place of fear. So one of the things I think people do is they'll, they'll like, well, we can't get everything that we ask for, so we'll ask for less. And I just feel like that's a bad negotiating strategy anyway, just full stop, like in any context, but certainly in politics, it's, it's, a, it's not a great negotiating strategy because you get less if you ask for less. You know, I think there's a line in Hamilton. It was like, you know, you got more than you gave and I wanted what I got. Is that how it goes? Um, it's from Hamilton. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's in the room where it happens. And that's such a smart point because you have to sort of go in um, and you want to you want to go big. You want to go bold. You want to go you know pies, pie, sky's the limit. Um, and then if we don't get everything, that's still okay. But don't go in you know with half the list, and then you come out with a you know a third, and then I'm supposed to be happy. <laughs> like so, for example, I wouldn't you know get in there if if Joe Biden is is successful, you know, and he gets in there and his first healthcare proposal is like you know well let's tinker Obamacare a little. That'll that'll do it. No, because we're living through a pandemic where we have finally realized that tying employment to health insurance is a bad idea because if people lose their jobs in the pandemic, they don't have their health insurance, which they will need because we're in a pandemic. And that is and also because a pandemic function like at definition, the definition 
is basically like everybody's health affects everyone else. So if, if the, you know, you want everybody to have access to the COVID test they need or the antibodies test they need, or perhaps the uh, emergency room visit, um, because, you know, they're coming down with a couple symptoms and they're not sure what's going on. You don't want people to not do that, go to get the care they need because they're, they're afraid of the cost, right? As if as yeah. my neighbor, I don't want my neighbor not to go because of the cost. I want them to go and get treated so that they don't get everybody in the building sick or they don't get everybody in the school sick. I mean, that's fundamentally, I think, you know, why incrementalism, especially post-quarantine, will seem, uh, you know, very out of touch. So transformational change is put all the ideas on the table and then you'll negotiate about it. Every negotiation, you're going to lose some of what you wanted. But if you go in with all of the ideas, then you'll get some. But if you go in with half the ideas, you'll get less. And that We don't want less. We, we need a lot more than less. <laughs> All right. So I agree with every single thing you said. I like, let's, yeah. we gotta, we gotta think bigger. The world is more complicated. It's revealing what not thinking big enough yeah. maybe already uh, has created for us in a lot of the crisis that we are living through. Uh, you've, you've just released this book. So this is maybe a premature question, but I happen to be currently working on what I will inevitably also have come out next. Mm -hmm. Have you given thought to what next will look like for you? Or are you going to savor for a little while the end of white politics and uh, and decide on that later? Well, I did um, start writing um, a proposal for a memoir slash sort of feminist analysis around the Me Too movement because that's sort of the other you know tenet of my work is I'm a feminist writer who writes about the Me Too era, but also rape culture more broadly. So even, you know, the Me Too movement started 10 years ago when Tarana Burke started the hashtag, but post Harvey Weinstein, sort of in the mainstream consciousness, um, post 2017, I feel like there needs to be a lot of uh, work done around those issues in terms of how we are educating our boys and, and, and our girls, frankly, but mostly our boys. That's where I focus a lot of my work is on you know, I speak on college campus, well, when we could speak on college campuses, you know, go and speak to like the baseball team at USC or the hockey team at a variety of universities, because I feel like, you know, athletes are generally leaders on campuses. And if you can teach them to sort of look at, you know, themselves as leaders and examples and role models on how to treat people, then that trickles down, especially in a campus setting when, right when that was a thing. So, so that, that is like my life's work. And so even outside of sort of the, the political framework, that's the book that I want to do next, because I think that's, that's like the legacy I want to leave. I want people to think about those kinds of issues differently. And I think, you know, certainly this, this last four years have been, you know, educational for a lot of people because, you know, just of who's in power and, you know, how they speak about women and, and young women in particular. And so I think there is a, there's room for that next book that explores, you know, how we can raise our boys to, to treat everyone with dignity and respect. And I find it kind of interesting to think about post-COVID, if the idea of consent, like asking for consent to touch someone else will be different because we have been so, we're social distancing, you know, touching someone has very serious consequences in this moment. So I wonder if that can kind of change and maybe there's a whole generation that will have a whole new understanding of that. And maybe that can then help us 
you know, make the world safer for everybody. So that's, that's where I'm going with the next book. But what a great I haven't started project. anything yet. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. This world needs it. That's awesome. I love it. All right. Last question. Uh, we've covered so much. I so, so appreciate it. But I am trying to also, for every listener, give them something that they can do. One, it could be a small thing. It could be local or national politics. Maybe just having some more conversations about race and privilege. But if there is a single thing that you could encourage listeners to do after hearing this podcast that would help make this place that we all inhabit together just a little bit better, what would that one takeaway be? Find out how to mail-in vote in your state. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's that practical. It's like, I'm not even trying to get people to understand all of the arguments yet or the policies or the nuance. I mean, I think we're in an emergency. So it's like, we need new leadership and we need leadership that's going to listen to the scientists. I'm the daughter of a scientist particularly passionate about the idea of listening to the biologists and what they say and the epidemiologists. So that's first. Find out if you can mail and vote in your state. Find out how you can mail and vote. Do you have to apply for the ballot? Do you have to print out the application and mail it in? Like there's a lot of steps there for the generation Zers of the world. Like print something? Like what? So so that's what I would say. That's good. So Lena Maxwell, you are awesome. I'm glad that you Thank were here you. today. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I hope that listeners took something from this. I'm sure that they did. And uh, I hope that every single human who's listening to this will take a picture of this podcast on your device. We'll post it on Instagram and tag the both of us. If someone wants to get to know you better, where can they follow you? Are there places or things that they can jump into that you can direct them to so they can learn more about you and the work you do? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at Zerlina Maxwell. My Twitter is also at Zerlina Maxwell. And you can listen to my radio show in the morning if you have SiriusXM. You're probably not driving so many places now, but there is an app that everybody can listen to and it's on all you know possible devices. And the show is every weekday, 7 a.m. Eastern to 9 a.m. Eastern. That's the best way to get to know me because I literally me and my co-hosts are friends, real life friends. And so we've been separated during quarantine. So we basically just need to catch up, you know, so we <laughs> we're like, hey, how are you doing today? You know, that's it. But it's, it's a very smart conversation between a black feminist and a white feminist about, you know, everything that's going on. So that sounds interesting to you. Plus, we're funny. I think we're funny. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate you. Uh, thank you, listeners, thank you. for tuning in. We will see you next week for another episode of the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.